Good morning. So this morning we are starting into our Lenten series that's going to take us through the next um, five weeks. And it's entitled Disordered Love. What we're going to be doing in this series is we're actually going to be going through the first half of one chapter of the book of Genesis. Okay, So if you've been with us for 2017, this is like a continuation of Genesis Old Testament stuff that we've been doing. We spent the last eight weeks looking at the life of Joseph from the latter half of Genesis, and now we're going to be spending the next five weeks in just a few verses from the beginning of chapter 3. Now chapter 3 of Genesis is where we see Adam and Eve in the garden. It's where we see original sin come in. And how this series is going to work is that we are going to look at, like today, what is original sin? What does it mean when we say that there's sin that's alive in the world and alive in our lives? And I think that the, the, the Genesis 3 story can, in the best way possible, get us to the root of what that sin is. And as well as in the weeks to come, what do we see as the effects of sin? When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, there's effects that we immediately see in the verses that come afterwards. And what I want us to do is to not see this as like a history lesson, okay? I don't want us to see this as like, oh, that's what they did a long time ago. I think if we pay attention to it, we're going to see that the sin of Adam and Eve is the story of every single one of our lives here today. And that the effects of that sin that we see played out in the moments afterwards is playing out in your life today. This is our story. This is our story that takes place every day. And we wanted to live so that as we go through Lent, we can both reflect on that. That's the first part of Lent is to reflect. We want to take the time to reflect on, man, how is this a part of my life? How do we live this out today? And then secondly, to repent. And to repent means to turn and move in a new direction, to change the way you're living life, to reflect on how you're living, rather than just, I got the to-do list and responsibilities, and I'm charging forward this week, and here's my travel, and here's what's going on. And it's like to stop and think and reflect, and then secondly, to, to say, these are ways I want to move in a new direction, to repent. This should be an exciting time because if we take this seriously, what it means is, is that when we come to the end of this series, when we get to Holy Week and when we get to Good Friday and when we get to Easter, our lives should look different than they do today. And if you are like me and your life is not perfect, that is good news. And so we should have expectation as we start this journey, talking about disordered love, okay? The scripture passage before us is the first six verses of Genesis 3. And this is what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and when you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would open our eyes to how these things that we are reading about is our story and how we can repent of that to change the way that we live. We pray that you would give us insight and courage to engage this process. 
through our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the term disordered love is actually a term that is 1,600 years old. It was a term that was first used to describe sin by someone we know as St. Augustine. St. Augustine was a bishop in uh, northern Africa. He's from Algeria. And in kind of both of his major books, The Confessions and the City of God, he talks about and describes sin as disordered love. And I love this idea because sometimes we can stop and think that like the church is this thing that happens in our narrow kind of way of doing things here at Covenant and in America and everything else. And this example in this title shows how broad and diverse the church truly is. The, the person who gave us our sermon series title and this amazing description of sin gave it to us 1,600 years ago and he was an African bishop, which is really cool. It's really cool, and it's in a great description of sin. Because what we sometimes do in the American church is that we reduce sin to an action, right? And then church becomes about rules. Know it and do it. These are the good things to do, so I'm supposed to do it. The rules say to do this, and the Bible says to do this, so I do it. Or the Bible says that these are bad things, and this is sin, and so I shouldn't do that. And then the church in Lent becomes about know it and do it. Know the rules and do it. And that doesn't work. As I've shared with you guys before, after preaching four sermons today, I'm going to go home, and after a rainy weekend, my kids are going to be jumping off the chandeliers. No, we have any chandeliers. We're going to be jumping from the light fixtures of our home. And my job as a husband is to seek to serve my wife in those places. I know that, but I'm going to want to take a nap. <laughs> it's not about knowledge. I know what the Bible says as a husband I'm supposed to do. I just don't want to. Okay? So it's got to be about more than just know it and do it. Here's the rule, do it. Christianity, here's the rule, do it. Here's the rule of the bad thing, don't do that. That doesn't work. And it fills us with guilt and obligation. Augustine says that what lies deeper than the actions is what he calls disordered love. He says that that is actually the root of sin. It's not about the action. For example, in this passage, it's not about Adam and Eve taking fruit they weren't supposed to and eating. That's the action. But the root of that, the disordered love, comes in the desire that they have to be like God. That desire that turns into an action. Augustine wants us to get to the root of what is that disordered love that we see something we're not supposed to want and yet we want it. I love this description of the good things that maybe we love too much or the bad things that we love even when we know we're not supposed to and that it's that desire that Augustine wants us to get at. And his phrase for that is disordered love. So, how do we reflect on that today? How do we do that here at Covenant in the year 2017? Well, we don't use the language of Genesis 3 much anymore. We don't talk about that, I want to be like God. Because even if you don't come to church much, if you're in church, you know you're not supposed to say that, right? It's like, oh, I know I'm not supposed to do that, right? So we're like, oh, that's wrong, and they, they did the wrong thing there. But I want us to flesh this idea out to see, does this desire to be like God still exist in our world today? and in us today, and in us today. So if I ask you the question, if you had to, and I, I want you to interact with this, I would like you to raise your hand. Um, if you hear this and someone said, hey, we can be like God, what does that mean? Like just raise your hand, what does it mean to be like God? 
To be honored, yes, that part's awesome. To be honored, right? To have people, like we saw with Joseph, right? Like his brothers bow down before him worshiping. He's like, yeah, I'm a kind of a big deal. I think that you should do that. So yes, to be honored. To be in control, right? Nobody needs to, can tell us what to do. We are in control of our own lives. Yes, ma'am. To be powerful, absolutely. Thank you. To be, we are all powerful. There are no limits on our power. We can do anything we want to do. No limits at all. Yes. To be all knowing. Yes. To, we, we, we know all kinds of things. So we're in control. There's no limits on who can control us. There's no limits on our power. There's no limits on our knowledge. Kelly, did you want to? Omniscient. Yes. That's the, that's the, that's, that's the word for all knowing as well. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, I have a doctorate, so I understand those kind of words. Uh, yeah. To be perfect, absolutely, to be perfect. These are the things that we see that it means. And so my question for us today, if we talk about the idea of not having limits on our control, of not having limits on our power, of not having limits on our knowledge, of just having a limitless life where we can do whatever it is we wanna do, does that still exist today? Oh yeah. Not only does it exist, we have franchised that idea. We market it at all costs. We love the idea of living with no limits. Let me give you an example. First slide. Now, we're gonna move into some dangerous territory here because we are gonna be, if you're a Michael Phelps fan, I'm not trying to tear him off a pedestal here, okay? He's an amazing Olympic champion. Nothing's gonna take away from that. You wanna learn about swimming? Michael Phelps can teach you more than probably just about anyone. You wanna learn about discipline and daily getting ready to do a task? This is your guy that you can learn from. You wanna talk about somebody who thrives in competition? This is the guy. Nothing I'm gonna say is gonna take away from that. But because he's more decorated than any Olympian in history, he wrote a book because everyone wants to be like Michael Phelps. And the name of his book is No Limits. You can have no limits in your life. And this is a quote from the book. There will be obstacles, there will be doubters, there will be mistakes, but with hard work, there are no limits. Really? <laughs> really? I mean, that sounds good, and I'm drawn to it, and you put a quote up about success and winning and, and, and no limits, that quote comes up almost all the time, because we love the idea that, oh yeah, man, Michael Phelps, there are no limits to the all-time great in Olympic swimming, no limits, and if I work hard and there's obstacles and mistakes, I power through them. It's a terrible philosophy of how to live. It will make you feel guilty and inadequate all the time. And it's not just him. Nike had an advertising campaign. It was the No Limits campaign. Nike, one of the great companies, one of the great markets, because they know people are drawn to this. We love this idea. No limits. How different is that in modern language than you can be like God? And here's the thing. Just like Adam and Eve learned with the serpent, it's a false promise. It's not real. Here's, let me prove it to you. Michael Phelps, an amazing Olympic champion. No limits, right? Wrong. How many events did he swim in in 2016? Less than in 2012. Why? Because he's getting older. And guess what age does? There are limits to what happens. There's a reason, no matter how hard he works, that in 20 years, he can't qualify for the Olympics anymore. Why? Because there are limits. 
to getting older. I don't care how hard he trains over the next 20 years. Or get him out of the pool and let him run a 100-meter dash against Usain Bolt. You know what he's going to learn? Their limits. No matter how much he trains. You put somebody in a different setting, and what we learn is that that idea that we are drawn to when the Google search comes up, it's like the cheesy things that we see in offices are like teamwork and inspiration and no limit. Like, we love this stuff so much. We are, our hearts, it's right, man, it's a team. There's no limits to what we can do. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. It's a marketing idea that is as old as time, and yet we still fall for it. I know I do. The Nike No Limits campaign, man, when I was in high school, I had known my whole life I wanted to be a college basketball player. That was how I was going to go to college. It was just a question of which college did I want to accept their scholarship to. <laughs> was the only question that I wrestled with and I, and I worked for it, and I practiced, and I trained, and in high school, I tried out for our high school basketball team, which was really good, and I made the team, but I was a bench warmer. So I bought some Nikes. <laughs> I bought some Air Jordans. You know why? Because there are no limits with Nike. I was a mediocre basketball player who bought some Nike, and you know what I was with Nike? I was a mediocre high school basketball player with expensive shoes on. And I looked at my coach, I'm like, coach, no man, since I was young, my parents told me, you work hard and you can accomplish anything. Everybody heard that one before? You work hard and put your mind, you can accomplish anything. Not true. <laughs> I looked at him, I'm like, I put my mind in this and I want to accomplish anything. Being a college basketball player is like, yeah, it's not going to happen. You're not even going to start on your high school team, like ever in your four years. You're not going to get a college scholarship unless you grow 12 inches in the next year, and I don't see that happening. So here's the deal. You can maybe put your mind to it and do anything you want, and guess what? That's not real. No, 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 no. It has to be real. Because I can be like God. There are no limits to what I can do. And we've moved that into the realm of spirituality. What used to be something that we talked about repenting of has become something that in faith and in religion, we now celebrate that there's no limits. Like many of you, I've seen Pew reports that have talked about the declining trend of Christianity in this country, especially among younger adults, especially among millennials. And when we hear about that, when we hear about the growing numbers, the growing majority of people that are not coming to church on Sundays, as Christians, there is a part of us that needs to not throw stones to that. We need to look introspectively and confess. We need to figure out where we've been unimaginative in proclaiming the gospel. We need to figure out what we've done that hasn't connected. We need to recognize that scandals and different things that have taken place in the church have eroded at the trust that has taken place and that people are not finding the gospel presented in a way that they want to participate in. So we need to start by hearing that. But when you hear these reports and they say there's a new trend going on of people who don't need religion because their spirituality that can't be contained by any originalist, this original thing happening, there is nothing original about that at all. Our confession of how we have dropped the ball when it comes to proclaiming the gospel can't mean that we just go, oh, well, then everything's okay. Because here's the deal. When we live in a world where everyone's like, hey, man, it's just all paths to the same thing. It's just all different ideas. Like, is there any more evidence of our God complex than saying that? 
I mean, seriously. I've studied this stuff. I don't even begin to understand how certain things work. And the hubris that it takes to stand in front of people and go, yeah, I get it. It's just like all the same thing and it's all the same path and they all lead to the same thing. It's like, really? That's an amazing amount of knowledge you have about the world and God and how it works. Yeah, man, that's just kind of how it works today. Because you can play God. Anne Lamont writes about this and speaks about this. She talks about what, we, what she calls kind of cherry-picking the parts of spirituality and religion we like. Because I kind of like this part of this, and I like this part of this, and I like this concept here. And then I meld them together in my own original way because I can be the one who chooses what's right and wrong. And I have the wisdom to put it all together in the way that makes sense for me. And what Anne Lamont writes about that is so true and so convicting in that is she says, you know what? If you pay attention to your God and your spirituality in that, what you're going to figure out is that your God is going to love who you love. Your God is going to hate who you hate. Your God is going to have the values that you have. And your God is going to vote the way you vote. Because all we're doing is playing God ourselves. God's just a reflection of whatever we want. And there's nothing original about that. That story is as old as time. I know what I think. I know my values. I know how I'm going to vote. I know how I'm going to raise my kids. I know how I'm going to spend my money. I know how values work. I know what political parties support. I know what I think about this president. I know how things work. And I will be in control of my own life because it's desirable to be like God. And into that narrative, into that noise comes the gospel, comes the gospel, and the uniqueness of Jesus, and the uniqueness of God's presence and God's call upon our life that doesn't start out by saying there's no limits, but begins by saying there's a God who creates the world and creates you and creates you out of love and creates you uniquely with unique gifts and unique limitations so that you can play your part in what God is doing in this world. It's the opposite of the no limits approach to life. John Ortberg puts it this way in a quote. He says, if I have the courage to acknowledge my limits and actually embrace them, I can experience enormous freedom. If I lack this courage, I will be imprisoned by them. Here's the deal, no matter how hard I worked, I was never gonna be a college basketball player. And it didn't help me if I had people going, no, 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 just keep working hard because you can do anything you want to do. There are no limits on Thomas Daniel. That created a feel-good moment. but wasn't real. God made me, just like God made you, with unique gifts and a unique call and unique limitations that are different from anyone else so that you can uniquely participate in what God is doing in the world. And limitations are actually a part of understanding who we are and how we're created. And that is a pathway to freedom. So that's the journey we're taking. That's the Lenten journey. That's a pretty big journey to get our arms around. So where do we start? This is going back to, in the end, to Augustine's definition of disordered love. It's more than just about knowing it and doing it. Knowing the rules, do it. No, this is sin. Don't do that. Those are the rules of Christianity. It's about having our hearts 
changed. It's about our loves being reordered by God because the root of sin is disordered love. And so that's what we're going to invite you to do this Lent. Usually we end a series or we end a sermon by going, so here's the problem and here's what, we all have a God complex, here's what you do about it. The problem is too enormous to just do something about. And so the invitation before us as a congregation over the next few weeks of Lent, over the next five weeks of Lent, is that God is inviting us to fall more in love with him. To have our loves reordered by God's love for us. And so we have been really intentional in how we've tried to build Lent this year. I hope that many of you have gotten the daily reading of Psalms that's out there. And if you haven't picked it up, you can get it off the website. And there's a video that goes with it for how we wanted to work. We didn't create that because we just needed like a Lenten activity because the discipleship committee's bored. And they're like, well, I don't know what we're going to do. Let's just kind of like make up a devotional of some kind. It's like, no, what we're going to do is have daily readings of the Psalms because we believe that in daily spending time in God's word and reflecting on God's love for us, that we will come alive in how we love God. That's how we fall more in love with God is one of the ways is in solitude and in his word. One of the ways that we do it is in community. And so we're using Tish Warren's book, Liturgical of, uh, of the Ordinary, and my small group is starting that. And you are invited to do that as well so we can, in community, talk about, as she writes, about how our radar is up for where the Holy Spirit is moving every day. When we're at work, when we're at school, with our friends, when we're wherever we are, we're so busy accomplishing online, Facebook, Twitter, all these different things that are going on, that how do we pay attention for the movement of the Holy Spirit, for God to sweep us all off our feet? as we go through the ordinary daily activities of life. We have set this up because our hope this year for Lent is not that you will know and do more, but that you will fall more in love with Jesus. Because if our disordered loves can be put rightly, our actions will follow. But it's up to you. Whether you discipline your time, to engage. I hope that we can do that together because there's no telling what God's going to do in the weeks to come if we pay attention and give him the margin to operate. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray as disordered people who have disordered love in our life, including the desire to be like you that you will speak to us, that you will help us to reflect, that you will help us to see the patterns in our life, and as we see that we can repent and move in new directions. We pray that you would lead and guide us in this, and we pray this as we come to this feast today. May we be reminded of your love. In your holy name we pray, amen.